0: From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy on the campus of Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman.
1: And I'm Chris Beam, and this is Democracy Works. Michael, uh, who do we have on the
0: show today? Chris, today we have uh, Charlie Dent, who, a name that might be familiar especially to people in Pennsylvania, was a uh, congressman representing the 15th district in Pennsylvania as a Republican for 14 years until he left Congress uh, after the 2018 election.
1: And uh, he was here on campus because he's a proud alum, and and he won an award, uh, and he won an award. And so we uh, took advantage of his time here to ask him to come on the show. And I'm glad we did. He's in an interesting position, uh, an interesting guy to talk with. Very, uh, very smart, and very well. Uh, you know, he knows he knows Washington.
0: Uh, really interesting opportunity for us to uh, talk with him about democracy and Congress's role as we're in this really sort of. Interesting uh, time in terms of congressional legislative, congressional executive relations.
1: Right. Just in terms of, uh, you know, again, our, our focus is on democracy. And uh, Charlie Dent has has a
0: very interesting and informed perspective on On checks and balances. Yeah. And we really wanted to talk to him about that because uh, the Mueller report is out. Mm -hmm. Uh, Democrats control the House. Uh, They've issued a range of subpoenas uh, to members of the uh, administration to solicit materials from the administration. uh, And they're getting absolutely nowhere.
1: Right. Uh, And uh, so the question is, you know, um, what is the uh, what is the proper role of the legislative and, and executive branch? How do they compete with each other, and and who ha- ultimately decides? Right when they when they conflict.
0: Right, it might be a good opportunity for us to just sort of review the idea of separation of powers and uh, how and, it is a and, and, and
1: distinctively American. It really notion. is. It,
0: it is very different from a parliamentary system, uh-huh. uh, where, for example, the uh, you know the prime minister would come out of. Uh, the legislative branch and, in fact, is, continues to be a member of the legislative branch. But in the uh, American system, as laid out very clearly and eloquently in Federalist 51 uh, by James Madison, uh, we've set up the system of separated powers. Right, right.
1: Uh, I think uh,
0: Madison says that
1: each uh, power should look after its own interests.
0: Right. He's got a great phrase uh, called ambition counteracts ambition. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. the idea was that each branch of government was to be given sufficient powers uh, that it would attract ambitious people. Mm-hmm. They, were, they, they thought ambitious politicians mm-hmm. were a good thing, not well, a Well, and thing. an inevitable thing. And an inevitable <laughs> thing. Uh, and that it would have uh, sufficient power to make it a satisfying place to be and sufficient power to be able to check. The other branches of right. government.
1: The, the other thing, if I'm right, is that um, 51 says that the legislative branch uh, in, in a republic has to. Uh, be the most important; has to pre- predominate, right? Absolutely, some, and, yeah. and
0: that's why in the Constitution it has uh, the pride of place w- of being Article, right. Right. Article I, I, One. And, yeah. and in fact, all the really most of the uh, lawmaking powers are given to the Congress mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. Article One. The Congress shall have the power to, right. and then it lists most of the central powers uh, as residing in the legislative branch. And because they recognize that the legislative branch would be so powerful. Uh, they divided it into two. Right. And you could argue
1: that, you know, the American history may may be from, certainly from... Roosevelt on, but even before that has been the expansion of the executive branch
0: vis-a-vis the legislative right, branch. Really right, really up until Roosevelt, may, maybe the progressive era, yeah, but really yeah. up through uh, the New Deal and Roosevelt, the, the Congress really was the dominant right, branch right. of government. And, uh, you know, one of the most famous uh, textbooks of the time written by Woodrow Wilson, who was mm-hmm. a political scientist, who was called Congressional Government. And it was, uh, you know, this idea that Congress is the primary branch of government and the executive's job is to Execute the laws that the Congress passes.
1: Right. And, and so the argument now is that uh, what we have in terms of the, the operative sense of power in both branches is something that is different from and maybe even antithetical to what Madison and the founders laid out.
0: So we've been, you know, we're talking about this today from sort of ten thousand feet, right? And, and from and going on back fifty, right. seventy years, right? yeah. yeah. But uh, the congressman is in a uh, unique position right. to be able to talk about what it was like to be there for fourteen years within the leadership, mm-hmm. as a committee chairman, as right. the head of a, as the uh, co-head of a director of a uh, caucus, uh, and get
1: his perspective. And as a person who, in himself, represents this kind of. Um, Old model of, yeah, yeah. you know, of of the struggle between the parties, as opposed to being, you know, lockstep in one or the other. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so yeah. yeah, look forward to this. Um, Jenna, take it away.
2: This is Jenna Spinelli here today with Charlie Dent. Charlie, thanks for joining us on Democracy Works. Hey.
3: Thanks, Jenna. Thanks for having me on the program.
2: So uh, we're going to talk today about congressional oversight, the state of the uh, Republican Party, uh, all sorts of things like that. But before we do, um, you know, we have listeners of this show around the country, around the world who might not be familiar with kind of the ins and outs of Pennsylvania politics. Um, So, you know, you served Pennsylvania's 15th district um, for 13 years, if I did my math correctly, almost 14. Uh, Almost fourteen. So uh, for folks, uh, again, who are our not from Pennsylvania, can you give us an overview of the district that you served and uh, why you are no longer serving that district?
3: Yeah, I represented a a district in eastern Pennsylvania, largely the Lehigh Valley, uh, from my first uh, four terms and for my... Uh, My last three terms, uh, the district included parts of South Central Pennsylvania, went out as far as uh, uh, Hershey and and Southern Dauphin counties. Uh, So it was a wonderful district to represent. Uh, It was what we'd call a swing or marginal district, had a pretty good mix of urban, suburban, and rural communities. Uh, And so it was, uh, in many respects, uh, a bit of a bellwether for the country in terms of how it uh, perform from an election standpoint
2: great and so uh, you served as you said for for almost uh, 14 years uh, what what led to your decision to step away from office I, yeah I
3: had been contemplating you know my next step uh, probably since 2013 uh, and and for a variety of reasons I just decided that the time w- was right for me um, uh, and I, I didn't say it prior to the election uh, because I didn't want my my House Republican colleagues to be too upset with me but I I know enough about politics to know that if you're in the party of the president, uh, your your party will take significant losses. And I anticipated early on that we would that we House Republicans would be in the minority in the new session of Congress that they're in now. Uh, I would also say the current administration, you know, was also a factor, you know, just dealing with a never-ending drama and chaos. You know, was also a contributing factor.
2: You've said that the problems in Congress, kind of this this perception that it's, it's difficult to get anything done, as you just said, like, some of the chaos started um, before Donald Trump took office. Yeah. And, you know, you served in the House for more than a decade under three different administrations. How did things change during that time? Did you start to see the seeds of some of these things take root over that time?
3: Yeah, I, I, I did. Um what I found there used to be a rule and I thought an understanding if it wasn't a rule, but, but, uh, but it was a guideline, but there was a sense that uh, that that members who members of, of a legislative body who represented uh, what I would consider to be relatively safe seats, you know were expected to put up difficult governing votes pretty much all the time. And that changed during my time in Congress, where I, I learned, that many of these members in these safe seats became increasingly uh, concerned about potential primaries and they found it very difficult to govern. And, and what I also noticed too, there was also an expectation back then that members in these swing districts or marginal districts from time to time would be given a pass, so to speak, that they wouldn't be expected to put up votes on some of these difficult issues because they were in you know, a greater uh, risk of uh, electoral defeat. And but what's changed is these members in these swing and marginal districts end up putting up all the difficult governing votes all the time, and many of these members in these pretty safe seats, you know, took a pass whenever they wanted, and and so there was a kind of a breakdown uh, in the traditional order or discipline of things in in, in a legislative body. So I've I've noticed that was a big problem, and then it got this, that, that problem got uh, magnified after the Republican takeover in uh, 2010. After that election in the House, and then a few years into it, you know when the with the advent of the uh, uh, the Freedom caucus, it made things even more interesting.
2: Yeah. so now that you've had some some time away, are there things that you wish you would have done differently, or things that you 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 might have done differently to kind of sound the alarm about some of these things or maybe have different conversations with your your colleagues or or to the extent that you could use your your influence to to impact some of these issues?
3: I don't know. If there's anything I could have done to change it. I mean, I, I certainly raised the alarm. I raised the raised my voice about it on many occasions. Um, I don't know. If there's much more I could have done. I mean, I I think about that quite a bit. I mean, I think you know these trends are. These trends are trends. You know, it's kind of like you know the, you know the herd is moving in a direction. It's hard to change the, the direction of the herd. Uh, <laughs> you know when the. Uh, or when the tide is, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, receding or, or or coming up, it's uh, uh, you, there's not a lot you can always do about that. You just have to figure out how to manage it.
2: Yeah. And and so do you see, as as you've said, there is kind of this, this increasing polarization is, is is how we tend to think about it in, in kind of academic terms, but you described it as, you know, politicians increasingly playing to their bases, et cetera. So do you think that the, the, the better path forward is to kind of accept that and, and go with it or to try to change things to, to go back to maybe the way that they were before this kind of polarization was as severe as well, it is. Well, I don't know hours. that you
3: can ever really yeah. return to where you were, but we can get to a better place. Uh, and so what I mean by that is that, uh, you know, with the tribalization, uh, the tribalism, the polarization, uh, I mean, they're reaching a point that has uh, brought about this, uh, what seems to be a, p- a political paralysis. And and so I guess the question is, how do we get to that better place? Um, you know, the tribal nature of politics. I mean, I, I feel like we have two political parties in this country now. One's a pro-Trump party and one's an anti-Trump party. I mean, what do they stand for? Uh, you, you know, the Republican Party prior to Donald Trump, you know, we always had these uh, – uh, I always said we had these what I would call these self-designated chiefs of the purity police uh, who said this is what you need to stand for to be a good Republican. And if you didn't meet these litmus test issues on, you know, on, on taxes or free trade or abortion or LGBT or firearms, whatever the issue was, if you were somehow deviating from any of those, uh, those, those policies or principles, you were considered a squish or a rhino. So I got that, that accusation. So then, okay, that, that was the, so this was about you know, ideology or you know, being doctrinaire. And now here comes Donald Trump, who he's a lot of things, but I can tell you what he is not. He is not doctrinaire and he is not an ideologue. And so, so he's very transactional in nature. And so, what I've always felt is with Donald Trump is that you know the party now has shifted from one being about you know very you know rigid in terms of being doctrinaire and ideological, now it's it's about loyalty to a man. Yeah, it's, and that's what's changed, and and um, and so you know issues like you know free trade was a core principle for many Republicans. Now all of a sudden, we have the most protectionist president we've seen in maybe. I don't know, maybe a lifetime, uh, certainly my lifetime. And, you know, like arguably, you know, Smoot-Hawley, you know, Hoover signed that reluctantly. I mean, I don't think he wanted to sign it. Uh, so, so the point is the most protectionist president in my memory, at least since this more modern era. Uh, and, so, and so that's changed. And the Democratic Party I, at the same time is also trying to figure out what it stands for or against. It's also because of Donald Trump, I think, you know, taking on a reflexively anti-Trump position and in many respects, has also shifted hard left on many issues. You know, Medicare for all, Green New Deal, all these programs that they're talking about. I mean, you listen to Elizabeth Warren every day, and you know, she's got a, she's got a proposal a minute. And they all cost a lot of money. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's easy to, It's not hard to think up of a proposal or a plan if you know if money's not an obstacle <laughs> okay, <laughs> in right, your right. own mind.
2: So, do you feel like you still have a place in the kind of? pro-trump republican party or kind of the the party more broadly
3: at the moment uh no there's not a lot of room for a guy like me but you know but uh, you know these these moments are fleeting and um and believe me we are planning for the day uh when things change and they will change inevitably i mean i I thought the 2018 midterm would have been a wake-up call for some people Uh, apparently not um you know apparently not so um but you know we'll see we're going to have another election in 2020 and uh we'll see where 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 the chips fall uh but you know i i would say too you know in pennsylvania and and throughout the country republicans really saw uh, significant drop offs in, in suburban voters particularly suburban women uh and uh, with a, particularly suburban women with an edu- with a college education um and and uh and i felt that you know you look at say, Chester County, Pennsylvania, I mean, it was just a complete total disaster for Republicans, where 25 percent of Republicans who voted in that midterm election were voting against Republican candidates because of Donald Trump. And I would say that to some, like, what part of this don't we understand? There are many Republican members of Congress, you know, who are appalled and uh, and horrified by the, the president's behavior and conduct in office. Privately, uh, publicly, they have to be careful because they all live in mortal fear of primaries, and that, uh, and they're afraid they'll lose their primary if they are at all uh, critical in a, in any significant way of the president uh, uh, publicly.
2: So, is is your sense on that? Folks are just kind of waiting and you know hold your breath and make plans for whatever yeah. happens post Donald Trump, whenever yeah, that might be. I,
3: I think that's true. Although you know, again, if you're a, if you're a member of Congress in a swing or marginal district, you simply can't uh, be labeled as a you know generic Republican or a generic Democrat. You have to develop your own brand, um, and you know I, I, that was always my advice to my colleagues. You know, it's not going to do a, a, a Brian Fitzpatrick in Bucks County any good, or Connor Lamb in Allegheny County any good to be. Identified as generic Republican or generic Democrat, respectively. There's no point uh, for that. You don't survive that way in those types of districts. And there are other districts like that around the country, so they have to uh, be able to sell themselves and distinguish themselves and perhaps separate themselves from certain people in their own party. Uh, So I think that's something that that we should talk about is that uh, you – you can't always be seen as a rubber stamp. Because even people who supported Donald Trump said, "Yeah, I voted for him, but you know, I, I he a little off the wall. He's crazy at times, and you gotta, you know, you gotta still keep him in line." They don't expect people like that. They don't expect their congressman uh, to be a rubber stamp for the executive. They expect there to be a little bit of distance. That you're there to represent this this district, and there may be times you disagree, and that's that's okay. They expect you to do that.
2: Yeah, and let's let's talk about that that sense of of disagreement and and checks and balances. You know, I think we tend to think about congressional oversight here in the annals of academia at a very high level. We think about the framers and we think about what's in the Constitution in terms of checks and balances. But wondering what that actually looks like on the ground day to day. Was it something that you thought about a lot, yeah. or you know, what what role did that play yeah. in your service?
3: I, I think in some respects, oversight, you know, is a serious. Uh, responsibility of Congress and it's done on a daily basis. I, I was on the Homeland Security and Transportation and Infrastructure Committees prior to coming to the Appropriations Committee and when I was on the Homeland Security Committee we spent a lot of our time you know really looking at what the department was doing. You know, at that time it was a relatively new department, very new department and so there were growing pains and so we exercised a lot of oversight and a lot of it wasn't particularly, some of it wasn't you know very glamorous or sexy but it was necessary and but I find now that you know the oversight seems to be more about, in many respects, you know, getting your name on television, you know, big high splash moments, as opposed to the hard mundane work of you know analyzing what these departments are doing, how they're spending money, and then going to the appropriations committee. You know, I spent a lot of my time looking at where they were parking money, what they were doing with it, and saying, okay, we don't need to put keep money in that account. We can move it out of there and move it elsewhere, or or whatever we, we and this is just not necessarily that glamorous or interesting work, but that's the hard work of oversight. A lot of it is unseen uh, by the public, but necessary. But much of the oversight that we talk about now, it's you know it's impeachment proceedings – or not impeachment proceedings, but uh, uh, but you know uh, you know the, the Russia investigation and all the oversight of you know uh, you know you know the president's daily tweets or whatever you know the latest you know uh, newsflash is <laughs> instead of just the the hard day to day
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so we we have seen though you know several members of the the Trump administration ignoring congressional subpoenas over over the past uh, couple of weeks as as we record here as someone who has been in these committees and you know part of these requests what what's lost when when people don't comply with with these requests?
3: well, you know it's funny I was I was a chairman of the uh, House Ethics Committee at one time and I had authorized subpoenas and you know issued subpoenas, but quite often, uh, just the threat of the subpoena when i we would authorize and we didn't necessarily initiate they helped us in our negotiations to get somebody to come in voluntarily you know you, if you don't come in voluntarily you will be subpoenaed and they don't want to be subpoenaed and that gets public and so uh and so uh, and so i guess uh now i think when error error that the uh, congressman jerry nadler chair of the house judiciary committee has made is i think they've I think they have just uh, not been very strategic in terms of issuing subpoenas. When they you know, issue uh, subpoenas everybody under the sun, all of a sudden this, this, it doesn't look like, like a, a serious oversight effort. It's just about p- politics at that point. And I think the Democrats would be well served to be much more strategic in determining who they want to come in and, 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 and why. Uh, you know, when everything is a priority, nothing is a priority you know and uh, and that's a uh, and i think that's where the democrats are right now now that said it is very problematic when when this administration you know is is essentially going to willfully oppose or obstruct any subpoena for anyone uh that's concerning although to be fair i've seen every presidential administration obama and bush look they they're always going to fight with you over subpoenas but at the end of the day you know they're going to they don't like them but they'll negotiate something, and there'll be some level of compliance. Uh, but with, the, with Donald Trump, he's just kind of taking the position, you know, we're not, the, we're not honoring them. That's that will certainly undermine Congress's authority.
2: So, you know, I think in. In, in some ways to, to bring this back to the founders you know they didn't anticipate this increased emphasis on preserving a partisan identity over the power yeah. of of the institution what what do you make of that yeah, and yeah. You know, what's the path forward there
3: got it jenna here's here's the deal you know i believe in many respects we no longer have a system of separation of powers but a system of separation of parties and what i mean by that is i've noticed this and this again this is not about donald trump this predates Donald Trump. I've seen it with both political parties. It seems that the party controls, the, 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 whichever party controls the presidency, the, you know, the Obama and the Democrats, that, the, that the, the, their, their congressional party, the, the congressional Democrats see their obligation and same with congressional Republicans is to protect their president of that party. And so they will do things that you, know, you think would fly in the face of what maybe Madison had intended. Uh, which is that, you know, you defend your institutional interests. And, and I think that has been a big problem. I, again, it's about separation of parties more than separation of powers. And, and I have complained too, um, you know, as I, I talked previously about, uh, you know, this issue of declaring emergency on the border and taking appropriated funds for a purpose that it was not intended for. Now to me that is a clear institutional violation of of Congress's authorities. I mean, I mean that's why I, I felt that Republicans Democrats alike should say no Mr. President. This is our this is our bailiwick. We appropriated these monies for a specific purpose. You cannot move that money without a vote of the US Congress. I mean that's you know regardless of you know whether or not you agree with the president on the policy. I mean I, that's where I think has gotten gotten lost. Uh, that many members really do see their, their role is to protect the president of their party, separation of parties. And so they're behaving in many respects uh, as if they're operating in a parliamentary system rather than this system of separation of powers and, uh, and checks and balances that we know. I mean, this is not a parliamentary system. You know, the executive is not part of the, uh, the, of the uh, legislative body, the parliament, as in the UK, you know, where Theresa May... You know, she is part of the House of Commons and and has a vote. That's not the case here, and I and I I worry about that. You know, we we don't we simply can't function like a parliamentary system. And I think at times many members feel like they're in a parliamentary system. In fact, a funny story about this: I was in India, and a very uh, glib and articulate, very uh, thoughtful Indian uh, parliamentarian (laughs) said to me said in the uh, gathering I was at, he said, you know, the American system, your democratic system is is brilliant. He said, it would work wonderfully over here in India. He said, in fact, it would work better here than it's working in your own country, <laughs> so it's.
2: Yeah, so I mean, it, it, given all of that, I mean, where where do we go from here? I mean, do you see that this this trend will continue, or do you think that we might get back to a place where, of the, where where partisanship won't have such a a large role in in the the governing process i guess
3: the best I can say about that is that uh you
2: know,
3: until until voters you, you know insist on change things won't ma- these these things uh, won't change uh give the 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 example of um you know you, you hear a lot of, i i talk a lot about uh you know pragmatism. You've got to, you know, in order to get things done, we have to have people who are who are pragmatic. You can be ideologically uh, or philosophically conservative or, or liberal or progressive, and and that's fine, and that's a good thing. But at the same time, what I worry about, are, you know, do they have the capacity to be pragmatic? You know, there are very conservative and very liberal people who are pragmatic, you know, who will say, okay, yeah, I understand that you and I may disagree on, on these... Uh, on, on several things but there are two things we agree on and so let's agree on those two things set aside the stuff we disagree on and, and move forward and but i think we're losing that ability in 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 this system you know if if you know, if I'm for it, you must be against it. I mean, no matter what it is. I mean, it's so it's gotten the, to the point of the absurd.
2: Yeah. yeah. So, so as we come up to the next round round of elections here in 2020, what what should voters be looking for? What questions can they ask candidates to kind of get at some of this? You know, their how how committed they are to that that hard work of governance, how pragmatic they are. Some of these things that that you've just just been talking about.
3: Yeah, uh, you know, b- what should voters do? Um, you know, I, I – look, I, and, until voters are going to reward uh, candidates who seek consensus and compromise and are pragmatic, uh, I, then I don't think things will change. Uh, but if – you know, I think a lot of I, – I, you, know, th- you look at the Congress today, particularly the House. You know, there are a lot of members of the House um, – you know, who, you know, I think do a very good job of, rep- of representing their bases and in some cases fringe elements of their bases. So you and, – and I think where there's a, a problem is that uh, the political center of the country feels woefully underrepresented in the U.S. Congress right now. Now, I do think that the political center – I'm going to say somewhere between center right and center left – probably constitutes uh, more than a majority of this country. Uh, I'd say probably a strong majority of this country. I bet sixty percent of the people in this country identify somewhere bet- between those uh, in that range of center right to center left, uh, and they're only about maybe forty percent, twenty about that are you know really you know hardcore progressive, hardcore conservative. Uh, so I, I think if until uh, you know, until that sixty percent of the population is able to uh, you know uh, you know speak with a louder voice particularly in the primary process, which I think really is the root of many of our problems. It's the way we nominate candidates, not the way we elect them. It's the way we nominate them uh, that I think contributes so much to this polarization. Uh, I mean, look at the Democratic presidential primary now. I mean, who can outflank the other? You know, they're all trying to move hard left. And now I think Biden has figured out that maybe that's not the path forward. If you have you know, but a few dozen candidates. You know, a few dozen candidates for president. And they're all trying to go hard left. Well, maybe there is a center lane there, and uh, maybe Biden can capture that um, if he can. And um, and so, and by the way, he was never considered the most centrist guy in the world. I mean, he was kind of considered pretty pretty liberal. But uh, but in this in this day and age, he's really quite quite the moderate. Uh, you know, of the race. So, I mean, that's but that just speaks to the issue of how these primaries, you know, really drag these candidates to a place where most of them know they shouldn't go. Um, Really, it's I think it's uh, going to a terrible place, and uh, and I and I think the same thing you know happened on the Republican side in 2016. Many found themselves going to a bad place, Um, and and so how do you maybe maybe there'll be a serious independent candidacy at some point. If the Democrats do nominate somebody on the hard left and the Republicans to stay, you know, Trumpian, that's gonna open that center lane for someone because major political parties, you know, not just, and we, we, we tend to, in the United States, tend to be too focused on what's happening here, very American-centric, when in fact, you look at the two major political parties in Germany, uh, the CDU, which is the, Christ, uh, the Christian Democrats center-right, Social Democrats center-left, you know, in the last election for uh, chancellor, um, the two those two major parties between the two of them received 53 percent of the vote, barely a majority. You look at the United Kingdom, and their politics are completely scrambled, as they are here over Brexit, where you know the Tories and Labour are both in a very bad spot, uh, and uh, you know the the, the po- politics there. It's really you know, are you are you uh, for stay or remain? I mean, that's the politics now, and it's. People in both parties and France, the two major political parties collapsed, and this fellow Macron, Emmanuel Macron, came up the middle. Um, you look uh, throughout Italy with the Five Star Movement. You know Hungary's got Orbán, and uh, Poland's kind of taken a more of a, a hard turn, a populist turn. Uh, and so we're seeing this. You know, you saw it in, um, in France with Le Pen. You see it in the, in the Netherlands with the the Wilders. There's there's a populist uprising. Some use the term nationalistic. Uh, you, know, I, you know, nationalism in and of itself is not a bad thing. Uh, nativism is. <laughs> and, uh, and I think we're seeing this. And a lot of the politics are driven by uh, migration. And I think culture is changing faster than native mm-hmm. populations can accept. Uh, and so, I mean, that's that's a conversation that probably needs to occur, you know, in many democracies. You know, we all, we're all for immigration. The question is, you know how much and how fast, uh, and that's uh, and I think that's really a, a core issue that's driving much of the turbulence.
2: Going back to that that conflict that that, that we were talking about earlier with uh, Republicans who privately oppose President Trump but feel that they can't say so publicly uh, because they're they're concerned about their own seat or you know job security those those kind of things. Um, how how would they they respond or you know what should they say to to people who might say to them, well, aren't isn't that Kind of a, a an, an abandonment of your duty to to uphold the office and you know uphold your oath to serve those those sorts of things.
3: Well, I I think it's hardly shocking that politicians will do what's in their political mm-hmm. interest. I mean, they just they do that. I mean, it's like you know fish swim in water. <laughs> you know, <laughs> politicians protect their interests. Um, and I think you could ask that same question to the Democrats. Um, you know, and if, if the issue is uh, you know look I, yes, the president's be- in my view the president's behavior has been quite. You know, it's been horrible in many ways, deplorable. Uh, you know the way he carries on at times, um, but at the same time, many people elected him knowing that he carried on in bad ways and in ways that they themselves found objectionable, but still voted for him. So I mean, so I can I can look back, and so at least as it relates to the question of impeachment, I, you know, narcissism is not an impeachable offense. <laughs> it's not a. Uh, at least I don't think it is. And you know, and I and I think there's an argument to be made. Yes, okay, you can be appalled by the guy's conduct, but there is a way to remedy that. It's through an election. And at that point, people will be able to express their pleasure or displeasure. Uh, you know, with the the state state of the country. So, in in many respects, if you're a Democrat and if you want Trump gone, I would think it'd be more satisfying for them to defeat him in an election. Than to have a, a vote of impeachment in the House, only to watch it fail in the Senate. So I think they would be much more satisfied with that. I mean, again, I think more people in Washington are focused on this, you know, this whole Mueller Barr flap and investigation and impeachment. That is more of a Washington-based conversation. I think most Americans are focused on other things. You know, they're worried about, you know, healthcare or or trade policy. Farmers are worried. Disaster. I mean, they're they're focused on things that have immediate impact and I, so i think we gotta you know be i think in you know in the bubble of washington dc you know they're they're focusing on a lot of it they're you know, focusing you know excessively on mueller but that's much of the country has moved on. They've, they've kind of made their their minds up. I don't think there's any change in them.
2: Uh, well, Charlie, this has been a fascinating conversation. We could easily talk about any one of these issues uh, all day long, and maybe we'll we'll have you back some time to to pick up on some of these things. But for now, we're going to end uh, with our four mood of the nation poll questions. So uh, thinking about politics and what's happening today, what makes you angry? What makes me
3: angry? Uh, I guess what makes me angry is the, the tribalization of the politics. It doesn't, you know, the the, the policy doesn't really matter that much uh, as, as as much as it used to. That's what I've said. You know, I, these campaigns are really they're 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 policy free zones. I mean, when Donald Trump ran, there really weren't many policies that he talked about. He talked about his poll numbers. He talked about himself. He talked about a lot of things, but he really didn't talk about policy. And I you know watch the Democrats, you know, like a guy like Beto O'Rourke. You know, I mean, it's all personality, charisma, not a lot of, not a lot of there there. The only candidate who seems to be putting a lot of policy out there is Elizabeth Warren. And frankly, my view, not a lot of it's that good (laughs) and it's, and it's very expensive. Uh, And so, um, so, I mean, so I I guess that makes me angry is that we've kind of got, we've become so tribal that where policy doesn't really make much of a difference at the moment.
2: Now, what makes you proud?
3: Uh, What makes me proud is that the, that our system, you know, with all its, warts and with all its problems is still remarkably strong and resilient and that we do have uh, you know wonderful institutions uh, that maybe change over time uh, but are embedded Uh, and and that's that's a good thing Uh, you know you watch you know you people talk about some of these fledgling democracies backsliding and there there are real worries about autocratic tendencies in some of these countries but here, I don't worry about it because we have not only we have you know uh, we have a democracy, but we have the the, the prerequisites and the foundations of a democracy: a fr- free press, independent judiciary. You know, we have separation of powers. We have we still have enough here that it's very strong, very robust. And yeah, you know, while they might be taking a bit of a beating right now and might be a little bit battered, you know, they're gonna they'll emerge. <laughs> they'll emerge uh, still strong.
2: Uh, what makes you worry? What makes me worry? Um, well,
3: what makes me worry is that you know, the country has r- really significant challenges in front of us, and they they go unaddressed or ignored as we deal with all the other noise. That you know, someday we're going to have to deal with a, our long term debt challenges. We need to deal with infrastructure, and because we cannot, as a country, get out of our own way, it seems. You know, we we just can't really deal with the very basics of governance just keeping the lights on you have to deal with a debt ceiling
2: and then finally what gives you hope
3: Yeah, uh, you know american people are by by and large very practical uh this is a can-do country i've always felt like this nation is the point of the spear uh this you know the people of this country are innovative uh they're imaginative uh, a lot of ideas come out of this country. I mean, it's no accident that a lot of industries are born here. And then, the, you know, and we always spend we spend a hell of a lot of time in this country talking about what we've lost. Sometimes we don't talk enough about what we've produced or what we've gained. You know, being the point of the spear, I tell these young these young people, I said, you know, you don't have to tell me today what you're going to do with the rest of your life, because the jobs you're going to be working in don't exist yet. The fields that you're going to be working in don't exist yet. So. You know the the issue then is to be adaptable, and and that's a great thing about this country. You know, people are practical; they are adaptable. They're a lot less afraid of change here than in most places of the world, and and so it's not surprising that this is where so much of uh, global innovation occurs. That doesn't mean it's always going to be that way, or that uh, we have to you know maintain our edge. Uh, but uh, that's the that's the real hope uh, uh, for this country, and and so we. We have a, I think, a better ability to look forward than most people, even though it seems at times we look back and we, you know, we, we moan about what was, uh, but it's the future that's usually bright for us.
2: Right. Well, that, that's a great place to leave yeah. things. Uh, Charlie Den, thank you so much for joining us today.
3: Hey, thank you, Jenna. Thanks for having me on the show.
0: Okay. Well, we're back, and uh, thank you, Jenna. That was a really interesting interview. Uh, He's quite thoughtful and insightful. Um,
1: yeah, and, and of, really appreciate um, the, the con- fact that he's just, you know, saying what he thinks is going on.
0: Yeah, you know? he had a great phrase that uh, does go back to what we were talking about uh, before the interview, where he said we're now a separated—rather that that than a separation of powers, we now have a separation of parties.
1: Right, right. Um, and, and how that— almost necessitates the kind of gridlock you were talking about as yeah, well. Yeah,
0: yeah. So I was focusing on the notion that the parties are so competitive now. And, you know, it's a tradition of many great political scientists over the years that the, the key characteristic of a party system is always the level of uh, competition. Yeah, yeah, Competitive party systems are different than non-competitive mm-hmm, party mm-hmm. systems. But he his perspective on it is a little different. I, he wasn't talking about that. Rather, uh, he was emphasizing, and this too, I think, is quite important, the role of polarization. Right.
1: When you have a two-party system and when those two parties are roughly equal in terms of power and in terms of the, you know, their standing in the electorate, um, this kind of polarization
0: um, becomes all the uh, more— Well, I, I actually think the polarization is, comes from some, a different sort of phenomenon, and that's a sorting. Of people that's taken uh-huh. place really since the mid 1960s, yeah. where uh, as the uh, South, which is the most conservative region in the country, uh, moved out of the Democratic Party right. uh, and into the Republican Party, and that had a that had a powerful effect on the Republican Party in terms of point, and on the Democratic Party to the Party right, too. right, and yeah. on the Democratic Party. And what you've seen over time is a sort of sorting uh, where people that see themselves as liberal. And, it, and with social identities that, mm-hmm, are, mm-hmm. that tend to be more liberal have moved into the Democratic Party, and the opposite has happened in terms of the Republican Party. So you have more ideologically pure parties. I mean, not as pure as you're obviously going to get in a multi-party system, but parties that are more ideologically coherent.
1: Mm-hmm. He says that, you know, he argues that um, the extreme – of American pop of uh, the American electorate is uh, running the show for both parties right so it's like 10 maybe 15 20 percent at most of the on um, both sides are the ones who are um, determining policy and determining candidates and so this big middle that he, you know, claims to represent and to be, you know, a part of himself, um, is just kind of shut out, and so compromise
0: becomes impossible. Compromise is a dirty word, right? Because if you have a if you have a district that the Democrats going to win, right, and or one where the Republicans going to win, mm-hmm. then the primary becomes the most critical, and right. primaries are fought. You know, only among uh, members of a single political party. And 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 the people who
1: come out for those elections are the ones who are most identified, most strident, most single issue.
0: Right. Which is why most of the Democratic candidates for president are staking out positions Pretty far to the left, mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. that's where they see the primary electorate as, as largely being. Uh, that's so, how they win. Yeah, right? and so, that's
1: how they keep their job once they've got it.
0: Yeah, so he does see that as uh, as important, and he also, you know, he also pointed out to us, I thought effectively, that we shouldn't expect more of politicians than we're getting. I agree with that. So let's close on on one last point that he made that I think is really important in terms of understanding. Uh, that Congress still does some of the hard work of democracy. Uh, and that is when he talked about oversight. Because, you know, the point he was making is that all this focus on the Democrats issuing of subpoenas and investigations uh, under the name of oversight mm-hmm. is, is how kind of I understood what he was saying. It sort of distorts our understanding of what oversight really oh, it's is. Or it's just too narrow. It's too right, narrow, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And, but,
1: well, I mean, that that, you know, because it's Article One, because Congress makes a law, because Congress has the power of the purse. And because, because the entire executive branch is created by the Congress. Right. And because uh, it is more directly – um, connected to the sovereignty of the people, mm-hmm. um, it has a more important role. I mean, that's the way it was meant to be, right? right? And
0: and he's making the point that this goes on, but we don't really see it, say it, because, yeah, it, it yeah. because it's not that exciting and it's, it's not that not interesting. Not a lot of it, that's true. But the you know the work of oversight is for the most part kind of boring mm-hmm. and uh, routine. Uh, but to just step back a minute as to where it comes from, well, when I say that the that the exe- Congress created the executive branch, of course, the executive branch is in Article II mm-hmm. of the Constitution. But it really gives it very little. And it's, it's Congress that comes in and, for example, says, we're going to create a Department of Homeland Security. And the Department of Homeland Security is going to have the powers to do this. Right. And it's going to be set up like this. And then it's the president's job to execute the laws that are set up for example, for the uh, Department of Homeland Security, but Congress created that. And so the oversight comes from their responsibility to make sure that the executive branch is functioning as they set it up to right, function. Right, And that, that's what the hard work of oversight really is. And it's critical to a democracy. And, you know, the one example that—, that Because the president's not a king and cannot just right. do whatever well, exactly. they want to do in the executive branch.
1: And, and so the one example he pointed to was, you know, the president's um, desire to change the budgeting in the military to— Bring in money to pay for his wall. And um, Charlie Dent said, You know, leave aside, bracket the question of whether Where that's a good idea. yeah yeah this is this is a problem for our constitutional frame of government, and it has to be, it has to be blocked if if we're going to continue
0: it. Right, and we should also recognize that you know in a, sta- a case like that, many Republicans did step right, forward and right, say right. this is this really is stepping into legislative powers, and right. you, should it be because they recognize you know the more you the more you enlarge the powers of the executive branch in any given administration, well that carries over to the next right. administration. Right, right, and and sooner or
1: later the shoe's going to be on the yeah, other foot. Exactly, and and that is probably one of the things that. Um, one of the few things that still remains as a uh, break on on uh, executive action and on congressional action is that you know sooner or later yep. uh, this is going to be uh, the other ox that's getting gored, and we're going to be sorry we gave them this power. Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah. But
1: it's also uh, good for people to recognize the role of someone who's open to. Uh, both sides open to compromise, and his takeaway is: if you want that, you're going to have to vote for it because yep. you're not going to see that kind of change. On you know, there's no profiles and courage here. Yeah, you know, um, it's if if you want it different, go make it different. Yep.
0: I mean, and, and I, it's it was interesting to hear him also because he's no he's no liberal. I right. mean, He's no. conservative. No. I, I, you know, his comments about Elizabeth Warren in mm-hmm. particular mm-hmm. really you know show that mm-hmm. when it comes to the role of government, he is for a smaller government right. and mm-hmm. one that does mm-hmm. less and spends less. Uh, but still, there's a non-ideological character to the way he talks pragmatic, about con- yeah. mm-hmm. Congress and pragmatic that I think we're really missing. Yeah, right I agree with that. Yeah.
1: Thanks again to Jenna and to Charlie. I'm Chris Beam. I'm Michael Berkman. Thanks for listening.
2: Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU Penn State. Our hosts are Michael Berkman, Chris Beam, and me, Jenna Spinelli. Andy Grant is our engineer and Mark Stitzer is our editor. Additional support comes from Emily Reddy, Shireen Stanford, Craig Johnson, and the rest of the team at WPSU. For detailed show notes and discussion questions for each episode, visit our website at democracyworkspodcast.com. And if you like what you heard today, please consider rating or reviewing us wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.